Hey, it's so good to be with you guys tonight. If you brought a Bible, please open it to Daniel chapter 9. Well, what a week it has been to spend some time together in the book of Daniel and to think together and hear from the Lord together about what it means for us to live as exiles. I hope that this time together has been encouraging and challenging for you. I hope that you have felt your courage grow. I hope that you have felt your resolve strengthened as you seek to live faithfully as a follower of Jesus, as you seek to be resilient in a world of hostility. Daniel's been such a good example to us to that end. And we have one more time together in God's word uh, to focus in on what we have to learn here. And I want to just begin by reading for you before I pray. I'm going to pray in just a moment, but I want to read for you a prayer that Daniel prayed. Uh, we already covered that much later in Daniel's life, when he was about 80 years old, he was still in Babylon. He was still in exile, and yet he was faithful to his God and to his king. And he continued his life of devotion and his life of seeking the face of the Lord. And in Daniel chapter 9, we have this prayer recorded, and I want to just read it for you, and then I'm going to pray over us. Daniel chapter 9 says this, starting in verse 3, then... I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. You're going to notice through this prayer that there's a tone of brokenhearted repentance for not only his sin, but the sin of his people. And this, I believe, is a, a massive key to understanding Daniel's longevity and Daniel's faithfulness to God is he never lost sight of a realistic picture of who he was and who God was. He lived humbly and he lived dependently on the Lord and he prays this way. Verse four, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke your, in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness but to us open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. I love this, verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Daniel maintained this humble realistic, repentant view of his own heart and of his own life, acknowledging his failure and his brokenness and yet not allowing that to keep him from God, but rather allowing it to spur him to run to God. The one that he says in verse nine is the one to whom belongs mercy and forgiveness. Daniel reminds us that God loves imperfect people that God is patient and kind, that God withholds what we deserve and grants us what we could never earn, and therefore he is worthy of our devotion and our trust. And the spirit and the heart of this prayer and of the entire book of Daniel is what we need if we will live faithfully as exiles. So before we jump into the bulk of tonight's message, let's humble our hearts before this great God and King, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is our privilege, God, to be in your presence. You are a holy, transcendent, and awesome God. And we who are broken and sinful have no business being in your presence. 
except for the fact that you have made a way through your son, Jesus Christ, and by your grace to bring us near. You have forgiven us of our sin. You have washed away our stain. You have wiped away our debt. And now we have been adopted into your family as your sons and daughters where we receive the lavish blessings that only you can supply. And so God, I pray that as we spend some time together in this final message and as we gear up and prepare our hearts and our minds and our lives to head down the hill and back to our homes and back to our families and back to our churches, that you would be near to us, that you would speak to us. God, I pray that we would fight the lie that if we didn't respond to you last night, it must be too late. You are still at work. You are still active and present in this place, and I pray that you would use even our time now to continue to strengthen us to live for your glory as exiles. And we ask you this now, praying it with confidence, because we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the things I love to do in Phoenix is hike. And I've been hiking for many years in Phoenix. One of the beautiful things about our city is that right smack dab in the middle of a thriving metropolis filled with six million people, bet you didn't know that, Phoenix is the fifth largest city in our country just after Atlanta, Georgia, right smack dab in the middle of it, there are massive mountains that have trails up the side of them. And one of my favorite forms of exercise is to go to the mountain and hike all the way up and you get this reward for your exercise at the end of the hike because you are granted a beautiful 360 degree view like a thousand feet up in the air and it's amazing. And what I, what I noticed recently at the mountain is that they put up these warning signs. They put up these signs in front of the mountain that um, if, if you notice they're down on the bottom right, so appropriate for Phoenix, it just says heat warning which is basically like, hey, if you do this in the summer, you might die, not our fault. That's basically what that sign says. You've been warned, don't hike this in the summer. But what I, what I noticed and what I loved, I only noticed these signs recently and I've been hiking for many years. If you zoom in on this next, uh, on the left part of the sign is they give you what to expect about this trail. And you'll notice there it says, this trail is rated extremely difficult. And I love, I didn't think this was possible. I thought this was only like skiing and snowboarding. They're like double black diamond, <laughs> which is amazing. And they're, they're not lying because just literally like three weeks ago, I was on a mountain like 10 minutes away from my house. It's called Camelback. It's the most iconic mountain in Phoenix. And my friend and I were going over the top and then back. And when we were at the top in the mid part of the morning, there was this girl who looked like a little bit distressed. And then by the time we got down to the other side and back up to the top, she was surrounded by a crowd of people because she had collapsed. And so we called the fire department and the guy that I was with was actually a firefighter. And by the time we got down to the very near the bottom of the trail, all of his buddies from the fire department were like hiking up with 45 pounds of gear on their back to go rescue this girl. There was nine trucks in the parking lot and a helicopter inbound to airlift her off of the mountain. Now, I think if this poor girl had been a little bit more realistic about her physical state, and the difficulty of what was coming, and the supplies that she needed, she may not have found herself in such a dire situation. And that's why I appreciate a sign like this, because what it does is it gives you realistic expectations for the journey ahead. And that is exactly what I want to try to do for you tonight. Because you are about to embark on a journey. You're about to head home. You're about to go back to your teams, to your jobs, to your families, to your houses, to your neighborhoods, to your friends. You are about to embark on a journey. And I do not want you to be deceived about what it's going to be like. In fact, I want you to have realistic expectations that will equip you to be prepared for what awaits you. And so to that end, I want to give you, if you can buckle your seatbelts, 10 expectations for exiles. We are going to have to fly. There's going to be some notebooks on fire from how quickly you're taking notes. And so if you're with me, say, I'm with you. I'm with you. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. I'm ready. If you want to go, say, let's go. let's go. 
Okay, 10 expectations for exiles. I am not nearly gonna do all of this justice. Caveat, these are not comprehensive. There's way more. I could give 50 more expectations. These are the 10 that were top of mind from our time together in Daniel, and you are gonna hear echoes of what we've been studying all week. And you would, you would be well served to write down the scripture references that I'm gonna put on the screen and look them up later. Here's 10 expectations for exiles. Number one, we covered this on night one. Heaven is home. Heaven is home. In John 14, Jesus is just on the brink of leaving his apostles to go where he will be crucified, and then he will ascend into heaven after his resurrection, and he says to them, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The reason I want this to be an expectation for you as you head home is because I want to plead with you to not set your heart so dearly on what you can get in the here and now. If you are a Christian, your duty and your joy is to not live with a merely earthly perspective, but to lift your eyes off of your temporal, superficial circumstances and to look to heaven as your eternal, true home and to long for it and to hope for it so that you can make it through any suffering and difficulty in this life. Heaven is your home. I love on the video when it said, where is home? Home is where the king is. And that's true for us. Jesus has gone on ahead of us to prepare a place for us, and that's where our true home is. So live with an eternal perspective and do not set your heart on purely what you can get in this life. Heaven is home. Here's the second expectation for exile. Number two, community is critical. Community is critical. Hebrews chapter 10 gives us this exhortation, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We, we talked about this. You guys need each other. In the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Amendigo, they rolled together. They had each other's backs. They were always mentioned in a triplet. And if you want to live faithfully as an exile, you will not be able to do it alone. If you try to go out and take on the big bad world all by yourself, you are going to fail. You need brothers and sisters. You need teammates. You need people who have your back. And like this scripture says, you need to consider how you can stir one another up, how you can agitate and move and motivate each other to walk with Jesus, to live in love and to pursue good works. You and I, we need to encourage each other. And it says all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you, if you know that eternity is waiting for you and you're, it's rushing toward you, then you should make a regular practice of being together with other faithful brothers and sisters so that you can make it your mission to encourage them as they follow Jesus and you can be encouraged as well. We need this, guys. Christianity is a team sport. There are no solo operators. No such thing as a lone wolf Christian. Every metaphor in the New Testament about the church is plural. We are one body with many members. And so take that seriously and lean into your community. Support each other, rally around each other, encourage each other, pray for each other, and push each other as you follow Jesus. Number, that's number two, community is critical. Number three, animosity is assured. Animosity is assured. You should always be able to find love and to find support and to find help from your brothers and sisters in Christ, but you should not count on it from people who don't know him. In fact, you should count on the opposite. Animosity is assured to you if you want to follow Jesus. Jesus himself said as much in the same conversation as John 14, just before he left his faithful disciples, he said to them, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
You see, I think we get a lot of, we run into a lot of problems when we make our way into the world and we are frustrated and disappointed and bitter when we don't get a 100% approval rating from everyone around us. And that should not be our expectation. You and I, we serve a savior who was falsely accused, condemned to die and crucified. And we, our, our whole mission, our whole goal is to be like him and to follow him. And that means we will follow him into suffering and follow him into opposition. So here's why I'm telling you this. Because if you buckle your seatbelt and you brace for impact, it won't be as surprising or shocking or jarring to you when it comes. Just expect it. There are going to be people who are not going to be stoked that you follow Jesus. And that's okay. Animosity is assured. Guys, one of the things that is just more and more tangible in the world that we live in, and for you as a teenager, this is like the air you breathe. The things that Christians have always believed are becoming less and less and less popular to believe. Do you know that this is true? Can you sense this? And it goes beyond being less and less popular. Like, let's just be realistic about this fact. In the, in the cultural moment that we live in, it's not merely that if you believe the things that the Bible teaches, everyone around you will say, I don't believe that, but no big deal. It's totally fine if you believe that. That is not what will happen. Some people will treat you like that, but some other people will say it is actually evil and wrong and backwards and bigoted for you to believe what the Bible believes. And they will attack you for believing what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. And so you just have to be ready to accept that some people are not going to like what you believe. Christians believe some very unpopular things right now. Christians believe that sexuality is between one man and one woman in the confines of marriage, that that's where it belongs. Christians believe that gender is a fixed reality that has been assigned by our good and wise creator. Christians believe that life begins in the womb and is sacred and worthy of protection. Christians believe, we, we can clap. This is, this is stuff that Christians have always believed. Christians believe that entertainment and pleasure are not the highest values in this life. Christians do not believe that our identity and our comfort should be our most aggressive pursuit. Christians refuse to be entertained and to laugh at the things that dishonor God. The, these things, I'm telling you, they will make you unpopular. And you do not have to become a hardened, cynical, arrogant jerk to believe those things. You can hold your convictions dearly and strongly, and you can still be a loving, gentle person. Now, you might say, Nick, well, how do I do that? It's easy. Ask your counselors. <laughs> Listen, there's two, there's two ditches you can fall in at all times. You can either fall in the ditch of being a, of being a raging jerk to people who don't believe like you, and being hardened against them and not doing what you're commanded to do, which is love people who don't know Jesus, but actually hating people who don't know Jesus and being disgusted and angry at them all the time. That's one ditch, and we don't want to fall into that ditch. The other ditch that you can fall into is that you, you absolutely affirm everything that the world believes and you get bullied into accepting things that are antithetical to a Christian worldview. And you say, well, we're just gonna love people and we're never gonna say anything and we're never gonna confront anyone and we're never gonna disagree. That is also a ditch to fall into. 
as Christians. Listen, I don't have the answers. You're going to ask me, how do I have this conversation in this situation with this person? And do I go? Do I not go? Do I say something? Do I not say something? I don't have the answers. But what I do have is the spirit of God inside of me, the word of God in front of me, and the ability to make decisions about how I can live most faithfully and love my enemies to the glory of God. And you have those resources too. Animosity is assured for you, but you do not have to grow bitter or hateful in the face of it. It is possible, guys, to maintain your convictions and to love people. And so I'm pleading with you to do it. This is what you should expect. That's number three. We got to go a little faster if we're going to be out of here before midnight. Number four, (laughs) pleasure is possible. Man, this is such an important one, guys. Pleasure is possible. You might be tempted to think after this week that we have spent together that the Christian life is pure, begrudging, self-denial, pain, horrible obedience. It's just drudgery. Like some of you are, you've heard all the messages and you've thought like, man, Thanks a lot, Nick. Like, I believe Jesus died for my sin, and I believe he rose from the dead, and I believe he can forgive me. But basically what you're telling me is I become a Christian, everyone hates me, life sucks, and then I die. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Like, who's signing up for that? Not me. Not me. I'm not signing up for that. And I have great news for you. The Bible says this. It's in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Listen, here's what I'm telling you. If Christianity was not the way to your highest and purest joy, I would never ask you to be a part of it. We buy into the lie that the watered down, sinful versions of pleasure and happiness that the world can offer you are better than what the God of the universe has to offer you. And it's just not true. Listen, God, yes, God has forbidden some things. God has drawn some boundaries. But I just need you to believe that God draws those boundaries not because he wants to withhold something from you, but because he loves you. He draws every boundary because he knows beyond that boundary is not goodness and joy, but destruction and pain. I've heard it said this way. When God says don't, He means don't hurt yourself. There are so many things to us in this life that feel attractive to us, that we feel drawn to, that God has forbidden. And God is like a loving father who tells his toddler, do not touch the stove when it's on because it will burn you. And if you have lived long enough to pursue your sinful, fleeting pleasures and make it far enough down that road to feel how disillusioned and disappointed and painful that road is, you will know that when God commands you to do something or forbids you to do something, he's doing it for your joy and for your good. So listen, I'm, I'm telling you, based on the authority of the word of God and my own experience, that the Christian life is better than anything the world has to offer. And if I'm being honest, it's more fun. It is more fun. It has deeper relationships and truer joy and less guilt and shame. It has more real and lasting pleasure. And so I'm pleading with you to believe that pleasure is possible in the Christian life. A truer pleasure and a better pleasure and a pleasure that won't leave you racked with regret the night before or the night after you do it. You can have true and lasting happiness in the Lord. You can be blessed if you live an obedient life. Pleasure is possible. So, listen, I know as a teenager that sounds, that sounds ridiculous to some of you. You just hear that and you think, yeah, right. Do you know the kind of fun all my friends are having on the weekend? Do you know the things that they're doing? Christians are boring and stodgy and crusty, and they're, they don't do anything fun. And listen, I, I'm just, I'm inviting you, I'm inviting you 
to participate in the long, slow, sanctifying process of growing to trust God and learning to redefine and re-understand what real pleasure is. Because so many of the things that the world offers you will never give you what they promise. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Here's number five. Pleasure is possible, but number five, discipline is demanded. Discipline is demanded. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? Shout out to my man with the little teeny tiny America shorts. That guy was running. (laughs) My man was zooming. I was out there with him. Do you not know that all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, uses this athlete imagery here. And he says, hey, an athlete, they maintain a regimented life of diet and rest and training and exercise and practice and preparation. And he says, your Christian life is like the life of an athlete. You are going to have to be disciplined. Now, listen, I've spoken to a bunch of you this week who at various times in your life have been close to the Lord and have desires for the Lord and want to please him and want to obey him, but you go home and it's like it goes out the window. But, but here's the problem with that. I think so many people who find themselves in that place, they, they went home and they just allowed all of their routine, all of their discipline, all of their pursuit of the Lord to fly out the window and then they're confused about why they're not close to Jesus. It's like, because you didn't do anything. It's not rocket science, guys. And I love you enough to tell you that if you go home and your Bible remains closed and it gathers dust on your bedside table and your mouth remains shut and you never open it in praise to God or prayers to him in the spirit, if you never go to your youth group and confess sin and fellowship with other believers, if you never pursue God, then do not blame him for feeling far away. It's your fault, and I love you enough to tell you. So listen, make a plan right now that you will be like an athlete, that you will say, I am going to discipline myself to pursue the Lord. At least try. At least try. Say, I'm going to set a time, and I'm going to set a place, and I'm going to set a plan, and I'm going to pursue my God and see if he doesn't meet you there. See if you don't give yourself to the Lord in a disciplined way and see if he doesn't powerfully change your life in those times that you set aside for him. Do not fall away from Christ for lack of trying. Discipline, if you're gonna be in exile, discipline is demanded. Do you remember Daniel? He prayed three times a day, every stinking day. I'm not... I'm never going to tell you, you have to pray three times a day, but there are worse ideas. Like, what if we just said, I'm going to pray three times a day. I'm going to wake up in the morning, and before I do anything, please, before you touch your phone, talk to God for just a second. At your lunch break, before you pick up your food, before you go hang with your friends, just talk to God for a second. Open up the Bible app on your phone and just look at the verse of the day and see what it says and see if you can believe something and live something because it's there. Just try, guys. Be disciplined and watch what God does. When when we are disciplined, right, spiritual disciplines are not like a magic trick. It's not like God is a genie and when we read our Bible, we, we like rub the lamp and then he pops out and gives us our wishes and makes us feel very good. That's not how it works. But what it is like is like this. Only the Holy Spirit of God can breathe fire into your life. Only the Holy Spirit of God can give you true and spiritual life. But you know what spiritual disciplines are? 
Spiritual disciplines are like gathering a whole bunch of kindling around a campfire so that when the Spirit brings the flame, when the Spirit brings the spark, there's actually something there to catch on fire. So be disciplined. Take it seriously as an exile, and God will show up in powerful ways. You need three things if you're ever going to be disciplined at anything. This is a little pro tip. Write this down. You need three things. I mentioned it earlier. You need a time, a place, and a plan. I'm just telling you this. Do not go home and say, well, I'm going to read my Bible every day. Like, that's, a gr- that's great. Please do that. But go one step further, and I'm telling you, it will not work unless you do this. Have a time, a place, and a plan. When will you do it? Every day is not good enough. You say, I'm going to do this at 6.15 tomorrow morning before I go to school. When are you going to do it? And then where are you going to do it? And I mean physically. Are you going to do it? Are you going to do it in like a, a study? Are you going to do it in your bedroom? Is there a place that you can sit? Do you need to like literally go in your closet, which is a biblical idea? Like get alone in the secret place with God? Where physically are you going to go to do it? And then last and maybe most important, you need a time, a place, and number three, a plan. When you get there, what will you do? If your plan for Bible reading is you're just going to do the, you're going to do like the Bible roulette, you're going to be like, what's for me today? I'm telling you, you will not read the Bible because you won't understand what's on the page because it's this crazy thing. It's written as a book, which means the Last part comes after the first part. Like, there's even numbers to organize it for you. It's amazing. Find a devotional. Find a plan. Ask your youth pastor, like, where should I start? Get a, get a Bible study that you can read along with. Have a plan for when you get there. A time, a place, and a plan. Okay, we are really not going fast enough. Number six. Sin. There's just so much I want to say to you guys. Number six. Sin is seductive. Sin is seductive. These are expectations for exiles. These are things you need to know if you're going to live faithfully, if you're going to be resilient in a world of hostility. And number six is sin is seductive. James chapter 1 verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Like, I don't, know if you're, I don't know if you're tracking with that, but it's, it's this very simple and powerful metaphor that what happens is you are tempted. What, what happens in temptation is that your desires lead you towards sin. And when you commit sin, sin leads to death. Now, I just need you to know that sin looks good. Sin is enticing Sin is at times attractive, but it is dangerous, and it is deadly, and it is destructive. It it makes me think of Edmund from the Chronicles of Narnia in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know the story. He comes across the white witch, and she offers him Turkish delight, which to him, it sounds like, and it looks like, and it tastes like the sweetest thing that he can possibly imagine. But before long, because he pursues what looks sweet, he ends up in the most bitter betrayal of everything that he holds dear. And he is filled with guilt and regret and shame. And that is what sin always does. Listen, sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Every single time. I've heard it said that sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That is what sin does. And if you have been attentive in your Christian life and you have kind of dipped your toes in the water of sin or maybe you've, even doubt, you've, you've gone all the way in, you know in your heart that that is true. 
Sin is, it's seductive. It woos you so that it can trap you and hurt you. So don't do it. Don't buy the lie of sin. And you're like, well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like things like lust in such a, an overly sexualized world you guys are pushed all the time towards crossing sexual boundaries in your physical relationships, living in sexual impurity online with pornography, and that's sin. It's going to hurt you. It's seductive, but it's deadly. It looks like anger. It looks like harboring resentment and bitterness and rage towards people. It looks like gossip, slandering and talking behind people's back. It, it looks like rebellion, just being completely disregarding the authorities around you. It looks like gluttony and pride and greed and envy and dishonesty. It looks like all of these things and it's million expressions which seem so tantalizing to you in the moment but will hurt you. And once again, when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. So just know it. Anticipate it, right? This is like the sign on the trail that says this trail is extremely difficult. Just expect it. Don't be caught off guard when you go home and that sin is whispering in your ear again like, hey, come on. You know how good this is. You know how good this feels. You know how good this looks. Don't be caught off guard. It's coming, and it's going to look good in the moment, and you're going to have to do what Daniel did and resolve that you will not defile yourself by eating the king's food. You will not go there. You will not sin because you are living based on conviction, and you know that sin is seductive. And because sin is seductive, number seven, repentance is required. Repentance is required. Last night we talked about the response of repentance. And I just want to say this to you tonight, that repentance is not a one-time thing that you do when you enter the kingdom of God. Repentance is a daily rhythm of your life as you live in the kingdom of God. Re repentance is not just your way in. Repentance is your daily habit of life if you are a follower of Jesus. You should be constantly asking the Spirit to reveal areas of sin in your life so that you can repent, which remember just means turn around, so that you can identify, I am walking down this pathway of destruction and death, and because the Spirit has brought it to my attention and I have felt conviction, I am now going to turn around and I'm going to turn my back on those sinful behaviors and I'm going to turn back towards the Lord. Repentance is required. It is absolutely necessary. And because sin is so seductive, it's going to get us. We are not going to have a perfect track record like Jesus did of resisting temptation and fighting against sin. Sin is going to get the upper hand at times. And yet, repentance is the ongoing rhythm by which we recognize that sin and turn away from it in the power of the Spirit. So don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Listen, this is, this is just a fact. Some of you, some of you I know, no matter how passionately I exhort you and charge you, no matter how faithfully your youth pastors love you, no matter how regularly your counselor checks in on you, listen, some of you are going to go home and maybe within minutes, you are gonna fall flat on your face and you're gonna go right back to the way your life was before. And I'm begging you, when that happens, do not buy the lie of the devil that it's all over now. That, well, you know, look at me, I've failed. I might as well just keep going down this road. That's a lie from the pit of hell. And I wanna just encourage you, if you go home and you fall flat on your face, Get back up, dust yourself off, call your counselor and say, man, I messed up, but I want to follow Jesus and repent and do it quickly. And guess what? This passage in Acts chapter three, it says when you repent and turn back, it says your sins will be blotted out and times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. So if you go home and you fail, 
I'm not going to tell you it's okay because it's not okay, but get back up, man. Get back on the horse. Follow Jesus again. He didn't love you because you had a perfect track record in the first place, and he won't stop loving you because you mess up. Repentance is available to you at any moment, so do it regularly. Do it every day. Ask God to reveal your sin and walk away from it by the power of the Spirit. Number eight, feelings are fleeting. You need to know this as an exile. Feelings are fleeting. In Psalm 73, it says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. <laughs> I just love that because what, what the psalmist is saying is that even if my desires and even if my body and even if my mind, even if they're not working right and even if they fail and even if they crumble and even if they fall, my hope was never built on my emotions, my feelings, my thoughts. My hope is built on the Lord Jesus Christ. My hope is in God, not in myself. And so you need to just know this, that feelings will come and go, and they certainly will. And some of you have experienced that already this week. And so I think there's kind of like two groups of people in this room. On the one hand, there are some of you who have had powerful emotional experiences this week at camp. Some of you in this room last night had deeply emotional feelings as you responded to the Lord, as you repented from sin, as you made a decision to follow Jesus. Please do not build your faith on those feelings because you're not promised those feelings. Those emotional feelings are not the reason you follow Jesus at all. You follow Jesus because he died to pay for your sin and he is alive now in resurrection power at the right hand of God and he has promised that one day he will return to judge the living and the dead and he will gather his people to be with him where he will rule and reign in the new heavens and the new earth forever and that is a fact of reality and you follow him because of that regardless of how you feel about it. You do not follow Jesus because of your emotional experiences. Emotional experiences are good. They can be healthy. But do not build your Christianity upon them because there's another group of people in this room. And some of you, you watched all these other people have these emotional experiences and you're like, why not me? Why, why haven't I had an emotional experience like that? And if that's you, I just want you to know there's nothing wrong you're not broken. God doesn't require or promise emotional experiences that will accompany your salvation. He doesn't promise you that you'll be deeply moved and stirred every time you're in his presence. It's okay. It's okay if you don't feel it as deeply as you should. Like we were talking about earlier, it's only the spirit of God that can bring the flame. You just be faithful to gather the kindling and let God do what God does. Feelings are fleeting, so don't build your life on them. Don't build your Christianity on them. Know God and trust him for him. He is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Number nine, we're almost there. Number nine, forgiveness is freeing. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. This has got to be one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness is freeing. And here's what I mean by this. Some of you came to Hume Lake this week, and it's like you were wearing a proverbial backpack of guilt and shame and weight. And the greatest news in all the world is that because of what Jesus has done on your behalf, you can take that backpack off and you never have to wear it again. There is no fear in perfect love. There is no guilt and shame in God's family. You do not have to feel racked by the pain of what you have done in the past. If God has sent his own son to forgive you, and if God in the courtroom of heaven bangs the gavel and says you are declared forgiven, then so you are. And so walk in that forgiveness, walk in that freedom. 
Forgiveness is freeing. And then here's the last and the tenth. Mission is meaning. Mission is meaning. And I want to finish here on purpose because this really, I believe, is it's kind of the point of it all. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is you and I. This is our job description. Did you know that there is a reason that God doesn't save you and then in a moment go like whisk you away to heaven? You don't give your life to Jesus and then it's like beam me up, Scotty, and you're gone from the earth. Do you know why? Because he has a job for you to do. He, he saves you and he leaves you because he saves you so that he can send you. Your life is intended to be a life of mission from now on. You, if you have given your life to Jesus, if you are a follower of Christ, you are now an ambassador, which means you represent your king in a foreign land. And this is what it means to be in exile. The reason we go to our Babylon and the reason we live there and the reason we dwell there and the reason we're faithful to our God there is because we know that God will work through us for the salvation and the blessing of those around us. And so mission is the great meaning of your earthly life if you know Jesus. And so I would, I would challenge you to ask yourself, how can I advance the cause of Christ? Way too often in the church, we outsource the work of mission to the spiritual professionals. We're like, oh, well, you know, I got a youth pastor and, and he'll preach the gospel to my friends. And my counselor who leads our Bible study, like they're the one who does all the spiritual stuff and like moves it forward. I just attend and I just, you know, I'm part of what's going on here. And I'm here to tell you, you are officially deputized as missionaries to the world that desperately needs the good news of the gospel that you know. You are saved so that you can be sent. Mission is meaning. So represent Jesus as an ambassador. Live on mission for him. There's someone who did this so well, and I want to finish by telling her story. Her name is Elizabeth Elliot. This is her and her husband, Jim. You may have heard their names before. Jim and Elizabeth Elliot were missionaries in Ecuador in the 1950s, and their deep desire was to reach people who had never heard the name of Jesus. And so they made contact with an unreached tribe called the Waurani tribe. And they went and reached this tribe and they circled around their area where they lived for weeks at a time and tried to drop messages and gifts to them. And then finally they decided that they would paddle their boats up the river and they would try to make physical contact with them. And the very first time that Jim Elliott and four of his missionary friends made physical contact with this tribe, they were all speared to death. They all died. And Elizabeth Elliot, rather than running away in fear, Elizabeth Elliot, after she mourned the loss of her husband, she went to live amongst the tribe that murdered her husband. And she went there because she believed that heaven was her true home and that the grace of God was worth giving her life for. And she lived among that tribe for several years and she got to see the good news of Jesus reach some of the very people that had murdered her own husband. And she lived the rest of her life as a faithful exile here on planet Earth, having suffered greatly, having experienced not just mockery, but murder in terms of animosity and opposition from the world. And yet she did not grow jaded. She did not grow bitter. She set her hope on heaven, and she spent her lifetime letting people know that Jesus was alive and he loved them. And I just want you to know that Elizabeth Elliot is not some sort of superhero. She's not different than you. She's a Christian. And you, if you want to follow Jesus, you are going to be an exile. Elizabeth Elliot, she's not crazy. She's not on a different level. She just knew the cost and she had the right expectations and she lived with an eternal perspective and was willing to sacrifice for it.
And so if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to do the same thing. If you want to live with resilience in a world of hostility, you're going to have to acknowledge the fact that you are far from your true home. And you are in a foreign land, but you represent the king. And you have the spirit of God inside of you. You have the people of God around you. And you have the mission of God in front of you. So my deepest and most earnest hope and prayer is that you are leaving this place with courage in your heart and steel in your spine to live faithfully for Jesus Christ no matter the cost. May he be glorified as we live as exiles for him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbled by your grace so thankful that you reach out to us, that you love us, that you know us, and that you speak to us. God, would you please give us your mercy? We recognize that as we head home, we are totally dependent on your grace. Jesus taught us in John 15:5 that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we utterly and completely depend on you And we ask, God, that as we seek you, as we live for you, as we honor you, as we speak of you, that you would richly supply everything we need by the presence and ministry of your Holy Spirit. I pray your blessing over all of these youth pastors and counselors and students and churches. I pray that they would be forever marked by the time that we spent in your word. And I pray that in all of it, the name of Jesus Christ would receive glory and honor now and forever. That is the great name in which we pray, the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. I just wanted to say it has been my honor and my privilege to be with you and to serve you this week. Me and my family have had the best time seeking the Lord with you. I hope that it's been an honor and a blessing and an encouragement for you guys. God bless you and we'll see you again.